The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I thank my friend and colleague, Dr. Jew, for getting us started wonderfully this morning. We are actually in this time together this morning going to back up about 1,800 years from B.B. Warfield. What we will discover this morning is that the Apostle Paul, as he came to understand the gospel. It was not because he was persuaded by its philosophy. It was not because he was persuaded by its morality. It was indeed that it was revealed from above. That the Jesus who came was a Jesus from above. That the words that he preached were not the words of men, but the very words of God. What Paul was gripped with this morning, I would suggest, or or 1800 years before Warfield, I would say to you this morning, ought equally to grip us. Because we have in our possession, as Dr. Jew has pointed us this morning, as has been historically understood in the church, that these are the words of God. Why has it been so understood? It is because God has spoken. These words themselves claim to be the word of God. And God has not deceived us. I grant you this morning that I know you have sat for some time. I thank you for coming and spending this time with us again today. And I ask you one more time to bow your head with me in prayer as we begin. Words of men or words of you, O Lord, you have not left us to wonder. And yet, indeed, our hearts, for varying reasons, rooted in the idolatrous desires for self-aggrandizement, for the exaltation of our intellects, or for the notoriety that might come by being noticed and having a different spin or a different take. We thank You, O Lord God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, the One who was revealed to the Apostle Paul and to the disciples, that indeed He is the King without spin. That He is indeed the full revelation of You, O God. We thank You that the Word that we have, the Scripture that we have, is Your Word. And I do pray that as we consider now the writings to the Apostle, uh, that the Apostle Paul has penned for us in the book of Galatians, that you would open our minds and hearts to see what Paul saw, to understand what Paul understood, that we would be gripped with the reality that you have spoken. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I do invite you to take your Bible, if you have one, and open to the first chapter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. We will read that text in just a few moments. The classroom was filled with 500 other students. It was a theater-style classroom. And the professor began to pontificate. In fact, his pontifications were so profound that I found myself deeply engaged with his musings. And Dr. Jew, I'm sorry to say that it was a history professor. And as he was pontificating, he began to sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. And then it happened. I met the hypnagogic jerk. Now, that wasn't the guy sitting next to me. Those of you who are medical doctors know that that hypnagogic jerk is that, hmm, that lurch that you experience when you have fallen asleep in an uncomfortable position. And in my lap had been a clipboard and a pen. It was, as I said, a theater-style classroom and a tile floor. (laughs) And as I jerked, my clipboard went flying. And my pen went flying and hit the floor. And all of the other 500 students in the classroom turned and looked at me as I sank lower and lower in my chair. Reminds me of a Southwest Airlines commercial, so you want to get away. As a preacher and as a teacher, I am no stranger to people falling asleep. You know who you are. (laughs) Better yet, your pastor knows who you are. But I want to suggest to you this morning, as we look at this text of Scripture from Galatians chapter 1, that the anguish of the pastor's heart is not God's people falling asleep in a church service. The anguish of a pastor's heart that is deeply reflective of the anguish of the Apostle Paul's heart is not falling asleep in the worship service, but God's people falling asleep in the service of the church. And that sleep comes about in a number of ways. As we look at the pages of this letter to the Galatian church, God's people had been lulled and rocked to sleep in two different ways. One of those ways was in the realm of morality. If you are a pastor or have been involved in church leadership, you know of the tragic and yet ongoing march of God's people. People who claim the name of Christ. There is this persistent march, not just outside the doors of the church, but down pathways of destruction. And it grieves a pastor's heart as people fall 
asleep, lulled by the cultural pressures, the moral pressures of society. But with equal weight in the book of Galatians, Paul is not concerned merely about the moral sleep, but he is also deeply troubled about the doctrinal sleep. God's people not taking God's word as God's word. Twisting and spinning the gospel. The entrance of theological error that Dr. Jew has described for us both from the 15th and 16th centuries and again the 19th and 20th centuries. The creeping in of doctrinal error. You see, the church does not go astray, does it, with overt marches in doctrinal errors. It is those sneaky, subversive Entrances into the life and heart of the church that rocks people to sleep, that leads them to say, you know what, it's no big deal. Why do we have to fight the battles over doctrine? Can't we all just get along? The Apostle Paul takes that notion head on. And before we read the text this morning, let me describe some of the ways in which that doctrinal error plagues the church of Jesus Christ. Dr. Jew wonderfully set the table for us again in this regard. It happens by what we might call a compartmentalization of our lives. In sort of a Kantian, post-Kantian dimensionalism, as he has described with the noumenal and the phenomenal realms. Now, while most of us may not have thought through the implications of that in our spiritual lives, what does happen, does it not, is that we have this religious category of our lives in which we say, yes, this part's for God, but the rest of the week, the rest of my life is mine, baby. And that's dualistic, bifurcated existence, that compartmentalization, is frankly reflective of how Kant has shaped us to make us believe that there is a turf for God and there's a turf for me. There's the secular realm, there's the spiritual realm. And what we discover over the pages of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is that the God who is the Creator of all is the Redeemer as well. And this God is Lord over all things. Jesus Christ is the Creator, guess what? Not only of the seen, Colossians 1, but of the unseen. To use Kant's false dichotomy, Jesus Christ is Lord of the noumenal. He is Lord of the phenomenal. Paul is troubled that the church has fallen asleep by allowing doctrinal error to seep in. The doctrines of men. This comes about by compartmentalization. You know what? In this day and age, I would suggest to you that again in the life of the church, it is happening by the scholarly guild in which the idea is that scholars are really the ones that can tell you what you ought to believe. That the church is just simply too dumb to read the Bible for itself. They do not understand the intricacies of the Scripture. And yet, one of the great themes of the Reformation as we march now this week into remembering the Reformation, the nailing of the 95 Theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, when Martin Luther began what we know now as the Reformation. 
Martin Luther understood the same thing that Paul understood is that these words are the words of God. It does not require the exaltation of rationalism. It does not require scholars to tell you, you have the Bible in your own language. Is there a place for teaching? Absolutely. Is there a place for scholars? Yes. But those scholars must first recognize that these are the words of God. So whether we add to the gospel or whether we subtract from the gospel, the Apostle Paul says that anything moral or doctrinal that leads us away from seeing these as the very words of God is not only troubling, but it is damnable. And Paul uses that language in Galatians chapter 1. Martin Luther as he discovered the gospel of grace, as he discovered that these words are actually God's word, was taken even by this very book, the book of Galatians. In fact, he described the book of Galatians as my epistle. Paul says, this one's mine. To it I am as it were in wedlock. He says, it is my Catherine. If you know anything about Martin Luther and Katie, his wife, Martin loved his dear bride. And this book was a book that freed his soul. Why? Because he learned in it that he could have full confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the words of God. Listen to the wake-up call from the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 1, and I will read verses 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, let him be cursed, let him be damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What is it that Paul tells us in this text this morning? He tells us first and foremost the source of the gospel. The gospel is from God. If we had time this morning, I would read with you all the way through chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians. One of the things that stands out is Paul spends the lion's share of both of those chapters defending his apostleship. Defending who he is as an apostle. And you might, without careful reflection, you might look at this and say, Paul, you're feeling a little insecure. 
You're feeling just a tad bit uneasy, Paul. Why are you feeling so defensive about your apostleship? Such a response, I believe, woefully misses the point. Paul is not concerned for him to be identified as an apostle. He is concerned that people understand that the reason that he is an apostle is what he says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul says the reason that you need to listen to me is not because I am somebody, but because God made me a minister of the Gospel, as he tells us more fully in Ephesians chapter 3. He said, I was made a minister. I, who am the chief of sinners, was made a minister. You see, Paul preaches the gospel. Why? Because God is the source of the gospel. It is from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. As you think about Paul's conversion, Paul was diligently persecuting the church of Jesus Christ until he met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Note that Paul's awakening was not in a philosophy class. That his awakening to the gospel of Jesus Christ as being divine did not come to him through his education. Paul had great training. Paul had great mentors. He was a very, very well-trained scholar. But it was not his education that gripped him. It was that the gospel message was a gospel from God in Christ. So as you think about the message of the gospel, remember it was not Paul who produced it. He preached it. It was not Paul who defined it. He is the one who declared it. He didn't invent it. He inherited it. The Apostle Paul didn't tweak that gospel. He taught it. He didn't spin that gospel. He submitted to it. Why? Because it is from God. Why can we have full confidence this morning as a group of people here in Amarillo, Texas about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because it does not come from below. The great error of the modernist fundamentalist controversy, the error of the modernists was that they believed that all that could be known was a bottom-up endeavor. And that by their rational powers, by the execution of their, of their genius, that they could tell you really what you ought to think. But Paul says the reason that I preach the gospel is because it is a gospel from above. It is a top-down gospel. Those of you who have done any reading in the history of ethics, will know the great British philosopher and economist who was also a lawyer by the name of Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham, who lived in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, was a man who is known as the father of modern utilitarian ethics. 
I won't bore you with what that means. But let me tell you something about Bentham. Bentham was a child prodigy. At the age of three, he was reading vast tomes of literature. At age four, he had mastered the Latin language. It is not any overstatement whatsoever to say that by the time that he had reached his peak as a scholar, he was slightly... (laughs) confident in his brilliance, so much so that in the philosophical society of which he was the leader, when he died, he asked his associates to actually mummify his head when he died. Why? Because he believed that After he died, the only way in which that group would survive and maintain its intellectual prowess was if his head was propped up in the meetings and would be there so that he could still, as a dead man, have a say. Now, rumor has it that a group of students at one point in the university stole his head (laughs) and enjoyed a night of soccer on the soccer field. Whether or not that is true, I want you to capture with me the ethos of Jeremy Bentham who believed so in his intellectual capacity that even as a dead man, he believed that he could have influence. Does that not reflect the nature of the fallen, sinful human heart? That we want to prop up our wisdom. We want to have a say. Indeed, that is what the trajectory, tra- trajectory of the scholarly guild is today is to say, yes, we know the Bible is supposedly the Word of God. We'll even tell you it's the Word of God. But it's really the Word of man. And let us tell you what you ought to believe. Paul had a full confidence in the Gospel. Why did he have such full confidence? Because it was a gospel from above, not a gospel from below. And I would suggest to you, with the arrogance of unbelieving scholarship in the Word of God as Word of God, that we are in that scholarly guild, insofar as we are guilty of denying the implications of the function of the Holy Spirit as the primary author of Scripture, insofar as we eclipse, bury, push away, suppress the Word of God as Word of God, we are like dead men telling the living God what He ought to say. And we need to have our heads kicked around a soccer field. The gospel is a gospel from above. Probably 20 years ago, I went to prison. 
to visit. <laughs> a young man, young teenager, sat across the table from him, and he looked me in the eye after we had talked for about an hour, and he said these words to me that have haunted me for these 20 years. He said, I know what God wants, and I know what I want, and I am going to do what I want. The Scriptures are God's Word. Most of us would not say with such boldness, I know it's God's Word, but I have my Word, and I'm going to do my Word. But the Scripture as Word of God calls us to a place of submission. We are the ones who are to receive God's Word, not tell God what He can and cannot do. Not to find the Gospel or some perverted notion of it as Paul describes, the distortion of it in the text that we read this morning. But the one true pure gospel. That is the gospel. That is the hope. That is the source of life. And the Apostle Paul preached the gospel with passion. And the church of Jesus Christ must preach it with passion, with clarity, with conviction. Why? Because it is God's gospel. Secondly, not only is the gospel from God, but we discover the reason that the Apostle Paul had full confidence that he would preach the gospel the way that he did was not only because the gospel was from God, but the very accomplishment of the gospel was by God. In verses 3 through 9, you read with me, and I'll just turn your attention again to verses 3 and 4. For the way in which the gospel is presented, a grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice that the Apostle Paul launches in by describing the character of the gospel. It is something that is from God, and it is also something that is accomplished by God in Jesus Christ. This is not something that is a bottom-up proposal. It is something that comes from heaven. If Jesus Christ is not the Son of God incarnate, you and I are the most pitiable fools on the face of the earth. And this Jesus Christ is the one that God has declared, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus Christ is the way by which God has accomplished the redemption of His people. You know, typically in Paul's letters, after you read the greeting, you have words of commendation. Galatians is the sole exception to that. 
Paul immediately after giving the greeting and presenting the gospel in an encapsulated form in these opening verses moves to verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Why is it that Paul does not begin with the Galatian church like he does everywhere else? I believe Steve mentioned last night, I have six children. I have none to spare. If one of my children was, let's say as a three or four year old, to be walking down the street and about to step into a busy road in front of an oncoming bus, this would not be a time for me to look at my precious little daughter and say, Honey, your dress looks so pretty. You look so beautiful today. This is a time for action. This is a time for us to hear that a perversion of the gospel, by adding our own spin, by seeing it as the words of men, is not, does not afford a place for commendation. The Apostle Paul sees the young church in Galatia as about to walk out in front of a bus. And he is calling the church of Galatia to listen to the Word of God as the Word of God and to reject any distortion of it. Look at the seriousness of this. I read again verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you. Notice that. To desert the Gospel of God is to desert the God of the Gospel. It is as His Word a reflection of who He is and to reject The gospel, to distort the gospel is to desert the God of the gospel. This is why the Apostle Paul is so consumed to address the doctrinal error, the distortion of the message of the gospel as something less than divine. The human heart pumps self-interest throughout the veins of our bodies. And the distortion of the gospel, it will be the proclivity of the fallen human heart. To whatever degree that we seek to redefine or to spin or to marginalize the gospel as divine is a result first and foremost of the human heart doing what Adam did in the garden and said, God, I've heard your word. I know you've called me to this, but I've got a better idea. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that comes from God. It is a gospel that is accomplished by God. And how tantalizing it is to listen to the scholarly world again as they seek now with a renewed fervor to convince us that what has been understood for 2,000 years as the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we now can tell you what you ought to believe. But I ask you, 
Will you listen to the cultural pressure to dismiss the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an exclusive gospel? Will you resist the notion that the the gospel of Jesus Christ is a divine gospel by listening to the spin of a liberalizing scholarship? I frankly hate the term liberal because liberalizing means freedom giving. And all that the scholarly guild does as it claims this as the word of man rather than the word of God is bind us. It does not free us. Let me tell you another way in which this perversion of the gospel from God and by God has entered in even to the broader evangelical community. Most of you will know the the author Charles Sheldon in his steps, 1896 from Topeka, Kansas, his thoughts were rooted what we know as were rooted in what we know as the social gospel from a man by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch. Many of you will know that name. And in that particular book, in his steps, Charles Sheldon drives us to this question: What would Jesus do? Now that's a good question on one level. As we face the challenges of life and as we have decisions to make, asking the question, what would Jesus do, is a great question. But undergirding that question is something far more troubling. Because as the social gospel proclaimed that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so construed by the social gospel is actually a gospel of morality. It is not the true gospel from above. And the foundational question of the gospel is not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? There is no gospel of grace apart from recognizing that the God who sent His Son, the gospel that is from above, is accomplished singularly by Jesus Christ. And there is no substitute. Moral questions will not be addressed properly by the church until we first go back and see our sanctification as rooted in our union with Jesus Christ. At the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Indeed, most of us, as we think of what is the gospel, many of us have the idea, well, the gospel is, let's see, i got to remember. I'm supposed to remember that, okay, I am a sinner, and uh, let's see, Jesus is the Savior, and I'm supposed to pray a prayer and ask for forgiveness. Do you know what the apostles saw as the content of the gospel? It was that Jesus Christ came He died and was buried and He rose again and is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. The events in the life of Christ are the Gospel. Why is there hope for the church now in the 21st century? Not because of what would Jesus do, but because of what did Jesus do. Now that is a subtle distortion, but it is a dangerous one. When we spin the Gospel into a matter of morality. There will not be heart-level, motivated, transforming power for addressing moral questions in our life unless we see the Gospel as from God and accomplished by God in Jesus Christ. The Gospel is from above. 
You see, the gospel is not to be marginalized. It is not to be trivialized. It is not to be politicized. It's not to be socialized. It's not to be marketed. It's not to be truncated. It's not to be compartmentalized. It is not even to be scholarized. It is a gospel that is from God and by God. Well, just how serious is this? Are we making a mountain out of a molehill, as my father used to always say? Well, look at the seriousness with which the Apostle Paul sees it. Verse 8, but even if we, Paul is including himself in that group, even if we, or that we means him and the other apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats himself. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You want to know why the spin of the gospel of what would Jesus do is more palatable? Because when we reduce the gospel to moral do's and don'ts, we do not have to confront the depth of wickedness of our own hearts. We do not have to come to the place of full spiritual poverty when we realize that we have nothing to bring to God except our sin. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of good news because the God of heaven has reached us who were dead in our trespasses and sins and has raised us from the dead, uniting us with Jesus Christ so that we have a hope. Where does that gospel come from? It comes from God above. There is no gospel other than that gospel. And yet it is far more palatable, isn't it? To think of the gospel, a distorted version of the gospel in human words. Because the moment at which we begin to say that the Bible, the gospel is a human concept, that these are merely human words, human words that indeed include error. Either the gospel of God as revealed through the Scriptures is absolutely true, or it is absolutely untrue, but everything in the middle, every view in the middle makes you and I, the judge, the arbiter about what we will determine, we will believe. And what that essentially does is it makes us go to God and say, God, I know you've said this is your word, but I am God as I make that determination. See, the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that Calvin preached, the gospel that Warfield and Machen preached. The gospel that is preached in this pulpit every Sunday morning and in the consortium of churches that are together for this Reformation, this Reformed Conference. That gospel in its purity is a gospel of God. It is a gospel from God and it is a gospel by God.
But there's one last point that I want us to get before we break. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Really sort of breaks up the sentence. Let me begin in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. At the very outset... As Paul has in these opening five verses shown us that the gospel is from God, the gospel is by God. You know what else he says? The gospel is for God. It is for Him. Did it ever dawn on you? Did it ever come to your thinking that your salvation as found in the pure gospel of Jesus Christ is not ultimately about you? This gospel is, as Paul articulates, for the glory of God the Father forever and ever. You see, our, the message of the gospel is not ultimately for us to feel better. It's not ultimately for us to look better. It is not ultimately for us even to be better. Though all of those things are gloriously true as we are united to the resurrected Christ. But why is it that God has sought a people for Himself? Why is the God of heaven chosen to reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why has He given us a gospel that we can have absolute full confidence in? He has done it that we as His people might give Him glory. Do you realize that the whole Gospel, as Paul preached it, has an exhaustively God-word, Christ-word orientation. It is from Him, it is by Him, and it is to Him. That is the Gospel. I would suggest to you, and Dr. Jew hinted at this last hour, that the reason that we are seeing the pure gospel as the word of God challenged, why we are seeing the scriptures as defined as exclusively human words, is because the human heart wants glory. There is a compelling, alluring component even in biblical scholarship to make a name for yourself. And if you can demonstrate some sort of new and creative way to address the matters of the Scriptures, there might be a way in which you can become known. But you see, for the Apostle Paul, it was never about him. It was always about God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. Any of you who are fans of classical music will know the world-famous virtuoso violinist by the name of Joshua Bell. Just a couple of years ago, Mr. Bell was 
preparing for a concert in Washington, D.C. The Washington Post discovered that he was coming to town, and they decided to set up an experiment. And they asked Mr. Bell if he would participate in this experiment, and it was as follows. They were going to ask Mr. Bell if he would go into one of the busiest subway stations in all of Washington, D.C., and ask him if he would play a concert during rush hour and to see how many people would notice that this virtuoso violinist is playing a concert in a Washington, D.C. subway. Mr. Bell agreed. He stayed in a hotel only three blocks away from the subway, and guess what he did? He took a cab. Now, why did he do that? It's not because he's lazy. He's frankly pretty, in pretty good shape. The reason that he took a cab from his hotel to the subway station is because in his violin case is housed a $3.5 million Stradivarius. And he took that violin and went down into the bowels of the earth and began to play his violin. And on January the 12th, 2007, at 7.51 a.m., Mr. Bell began a concert, a 43-minute concert, including what is deemed as one of the most difficult pieces for a violinist to play, Bach's famed Chacon. While he was doing this concert, strategically positioned on the opposite side of the hallway was a video camera. During that 43-minute concert, 1,097 people passed by. Seven stopped for at least a minute. Twenty-seven people gave some money, and in that concert, Mr. Bell, Mr. Bell acquired $32 and some odd cents. 1,070 people passed him by without turning their heads. They were focused on their lives. They were consumed with their agendas. And they ignored the Master. I would suggest to you that in whatever ways that we suppress the Word of God as the Word of God. The Gospel of God as the Gospel of God. This Gospel that God the Father has ordained that He's accomplished in His Son to the degree that we marginalize and suppress that. We are ignoring the glorious reality of the presence of the Master. How consumed are we with our own worlds, with our own names, with our own fame, that we will look at the Word of God and call it the words of man and make decisions in our hearts and our lives that we have full confidence in ourselves rather than the Word of God. And this Jesus, this Master has come and He has played for us a symphony of grace, accomplished for us full redemption. And I ask you this morning as we close, do the melodies of grace ring fully in your heart? Or are you, as John Calvin put it, as you listen to the glories of the gospel of grace, the glories of God's Word, are you like an ass at a concert, John Calvin asked? 
in which you hear the music, but you have no appreciation. The scholarly world would have you as a church prop yourselves up like dead men, propping up your own heart and saying, God, I will do what I will do. I will believe what I will believe. And the Apostle Paul, John Calvin, Martin Luther, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, and the faculty that is here with you at this conference this weekend here in Amarillo, Texas, will have you to know that not only can you have full confidence in God's Word and God's Gospel, but you must. Because it is God's Word. Because it is God's gospel. And because from Him, to Him, and through Him are all things. Let us pray. Oh God, we are an unworthy people. Unworthy of the disclosure of Your infinite wisdom that You have given in Your Word. Oh, may we treat Your Word with the full submission and respect that it is due. Forgive us, O God, for our arrogance in calling what You have said is Your Word and calling it merely the words of men. Whether we have done that in a scholarly way, whether we have done that in a willful way, whether we have done that in a moral way, whether we have done that in a doctrinal way, oh God, bring us to repentance. And bring us to a place where we have full confidence in You. Because anything short of that is sin. Forgive us, oh God. Grant us anew a love and appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ, the center of the gospel. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.